It's been a little bit of a crazy uh, season of our life, having a book come out and doing all the different things that that entails around Thanksgiving. And I know that you guys have probably had people that you love and some that you just like in your house. And so uh, it's, it's awesome that you guys are here and I'm excited to be with you. You guys have an awesome church, an incredible team, like Brian is an incredible leader, uh, Mark, all these guys. Uh, Love them, thankful for them, and, uh, and thankful to be here with you guys. You guys are awesome too, and so thank you for having me. But with that said, I want to jump in to the message today. And, you know, the first time I sat down to write this message, uh, it was originally going to be a message on pain. But then I was like, you know what? Uh, we have enough messages on pain. I feel like every time I walk into church, I'm, we're talking about pain and suffering, and like those are needed and necessary things. But sometimes I'm like, is there something else? Uh, and so I, I wanted to just recognize that sometimes I feel like we talk about what's going wrong along the path of life so much that we forget what we're even walking towards. And and so today, can we talk about hope a little bit this morning? I want to talk about hope because I think the best thing that we can do, even in the middle of our pain sometimes, is recognize that the hopelessness that we feel like surrounds us isn't greater than the hope that we have in Jesus. And so if you would, go ahead and meet me in Romans chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 24. And if you don't have a Bible on you, no worries. We're going to have the verses up here on this massive screen behind me. But I want to I preach a message this morning titled, And Yet. And Yet. Which is kind of a weird title for a message, but it's all centered on the fact that that word yet is really a word of hope. Because let me, let me ask you this, is your life perfect? Uh, the answer is no, even if you don't want to be honest with yourself on that one. And yet, your life is worth living. H has this past week been the easiest week for you? Maybe not, especially because holidays can be difficult. People can be difficult. Uh, I've heard even from my own wife that sometimes I can be difficult. So, you know, sometimes those are things that we deal with. And yet, here we are persevering. Uh, I know that there are so many things that are going on in your life, but you got to ask yourselves these questions, right? Like, like I know for myself today, uh, it, just being real, have, have any of you come in here feeling a little bit discouraged and downtrodden? I know I have. And yet, here we are full of hope. And so let me read these verses for us, starting in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Go ahead and follow along with me. But this is what God's word says. It says, against all hope, Mountain Lake Dawsonville in hope believed. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, for you and for me, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. 
Will you guys pray with me really quickly before we jump into everything? Well, God, I, uh, I just thank you for who you are and what you're doing in the lives of the people that are here. God, I don't, I don't know what's going on in people's lives, but you do. I, and there's so many things, especially around the holidays. They're not just all joy for everybody. There, there are so many things attached to it, people that aren't here that used to be. Uh, things that used to be traditions are now things that remind us of the worst times. But God, at the same time, there are many of us that come in here filled with joy. And even if there are people in here that things are just all butterflies and rainbows and this is a fantastic season of life, God, uh, we know that there is a hope that we need to cling to regardless of the season that we are in, whether we're in a valley or we're on the mountaintop. And so, Lord, we come to you today saying that we want to surrender all of who we are to you, every season of our life to you, and we just want to recognize that in all things and in all seasons, you are good and you stay true to your promises. And so, Lord, um, we just ask that you would do what only you can do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1975... American jazz piano player Keith Jarrett was doing a tour across Europe and one of his stops was in Germany at the Cologne Opera House. And the concert promoter for this particular event was a young 17-year-old jazz fanatic, a young girl whose name was Vera Brandis, and she was expecting more than 1,400 people to show up and watch Keith Jarrett perform this concert. Now, the thing you got to recognize about Keith Jarrett is the dude is an obsessive perfectionist. Like, one of those guys that's like, you have to be gifted at being an artist or something because you would drive people nuts with your particularness, right? And so he was one of those guys where he was very sensitive to the quality of the pianos that he was playing and the acoustics and, and all those kinds of things. And so he went into this particular event that evening requesting a very specific grand piano that he wanted to play that night. And so that request was made, but he was about to be in for a little bit of a shock because Keith and his manager, they met this young concert promoter on the day of the show. And as they're getting together, they go to the venue and they're like, wow, this is incredible. Like, I can't believe this, this exists. I can't believe I've never been here. There's gonna be such an incredible event here tonight. I can't wait to play here. Well, then they wheeled out the piano and things started to really go south in that moment because it was not only not a grand piano, they wheeled out a baby grand piano and it was one that had only been used in rehearsals. And so they started looking at this thing a little bit more and Keith and his manager are kind of inspecting it and they're noticing, okay, uh, the black notes don't work, the pedals are kind of sticking, it's making horrible noises. And then on top of that, Keith himself like wasn't in the best shape. He was going through severe back pain. He and his manager had just driven all night the night before from a concert they had played that night to be at this concert. And so they were just, they were struggling, right? They're running on little sleep, little health, and they have this horrible piano that they're expected to play. And so they tell Vera, particularly Keith's manager, says to Vera Brandis, this young concert promoter, hey, uh, we can't play this thing. Like, I don't, know, I don't know what you're thinking, but like, there is no way that we can play this piano. And you gotta imagine, like, it doesn't matter what age you are, but particularly at 17, right? Have someone come up to you and say, hey, I know you're expecting uh, 1,400 people to be at your party tonight, uh, 
but the main, the main act, we're not going to be able to do this. And she's like, what? No way. Like, this can't happen. And so she's running all around. She realizes, I can't get the piano he wants here tonight. There's no way. That's too short of an amount of time. And so she goes to a piano tuner. The piano tuner comes in and says, uh, yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure that like Jesus himself could fix this piano. Like this thing is horrible. And so she's like, I, I don't know what to do. And so she just begs Keith Jarrett. She's like, I know you don't know me, but um, I will do anything for you to play at this concert tonight. And after annoying him for roughly four or five hours, he finally agreed that he would play the concert. And so he went on at 11.30. He went on with a back brace for the pain because it was so bad in his back and he played his heart out. The piano was so small that like it didn't have enough volume to fill the room. So he was just completely and totally doing things that was not the way you would totally, uh, totally usually play a piano. He got up, he would stand up and then pound down on the keys. He would then sit down and avoid the black notes that were broken. He was doing all these different things to make sure that the concert would go as smooth as it possibly could and still the piano sounded a little weird but he played one of the greatest performances not only of his life but in the history of music that night went on to not only be the best-selling piano album of all time it also went on to be the best-selling solo jazz album of all time to this day. And as I say all this, a lot of you are looking at me like, this is awesome. Why do we care about what happened on a piano in Germany in 75? And it's because of this. I tell you that for this reason. Against all hope, it was in hope that they believed that that night could be something other than a complete and total disaster. But on the outside looking in, they had no reason to believe that. They had no reason to believe that the night was going to be anything other than a total train wreck, let alone one of the greatest performances and best-selling albums ever in multiple categories, right? The piano was broken, the piano player was broken, their preparation was broken, and yet, through hopeless circumstances, something miraculous was able to take place. And what's crazy to me is you gotta go here, you gotta think about this. What if they would have given Keith Jarrett the exact piano he wanted? What if they gave him the immaculate, perfect piano that Keith wanted? What if God gave you everything you wanted perfectly done the way that it, it is in your mind, right? If, if he would have had the exact piano he wanted, he wouldn't have played the way that he played and he wouldn't have seen the success that he has seen. He played the way that he played and he's seen the success that he's seen, not in spite of those hopeless circumstances, but because of the hope that he clung to in the midst of those hopeless circumstances. And some of you are here and I know that you're in a very similar position, even if you don't want to tell the rest of us about it. You look at the landscape of your life and you see that the circumstances are not the way that you saw things going and you are not a fan of things that are going on right now, maybe things that have gone on in your past that are still affecting the way that you're living your life right now. Things are not correct the way that you had hoped that they would go and things feel more hopeless on the outside maybe than they've ever been in your life. 
And that looks a lot different for all of us. Maybe you've been battling something privately and you're just really struggling with the hopelessness that you feel behind closed doors because you're not really sure how to tell anybody about this. Maybe you've got a kid that's just been wandering into crowds of people that you've been praying this would never happen and they're saying things in your house and doing things in your house that you are just, you're like dumbfounded. They're leaving you feeling hopeless. Maybe you just feel stuck in a season where it's like, man, I feel like God brought me all the way to this point. We were doing incredible things and now it's just like, I can't feel him. I can't sense him. It's like God just dropped me off in the middle of this wilderness. Or maybe it's as simple as you just feel discouraged in this season, in this time of year, is it the best for you? But let me just say this. I was sent here on assignment to tell somebody today that the hopelessness that you feel in your circumstances is not greater than the hope that we have in Jesus. When we cling to hope in the middle of hopeless circumstances, that's where God does some of his greatest forging and refining work in our faith. Abraham would tell you the same thing. He and his wife, Sarah, they couldn't have children because Sarah's womb was barren. And yet God promises Abraham, hey man, I promise you, I'm going to give you a son. And then through that son and through the work that I'm going to do in your life, let me just take you on outside, Abraham. Look at the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abraham's like, are you kidding me? This is crazy. And when Abraham turns 100 and Sarah is 90, they bear their first child. They have their son, Isaac, which like totally normal, right? 190, that makes sense. And so here comes Isaac. And you look at these first few verses though, right? In Romans 4, 18 through 19, and it kind of details some of the inner workings of that, right? Like sometimes we just read these great heroes of faith and we're like, man, that's awesome. Abraham believed, God delivered on his promise, and here he was, 100, and Sarah was 90, and they had a child. But I love what we get here in Romans because it details the inside of what was going on in Abraham's head and his heart a little bit what we get through Paul. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't hope to conceive on their own. So against a hope in a natural way of becoming pregnant, they had to believe Abraham and Sarah in hope believed in a supernatural promise from God that they would become pregnant. It says in verse 19, Abraham was aware his body was as good as dead and Sarah wasn't, you know, looking so good herself, but his faith did not weaken. And I love that. It says his faith didn't weaken because his hope was built on the promise of God's word. And when your hope is built on the promise of God's word, it's simultaneously setting up barricades against the worries and doubts of your circumstances. Now, as I say that, that's where sometimes I can lose myself. And I know that's where I start to lose some people because this is where we come to church, right? And some of us get frustrated and we think, man, like, I came to church, the worship was great, I get up to listen to this guy, and as he's talking, I'm frustrated. Because we're talking about the craziest stuff in here, this guy with ridiculous faith, Abraham, like, I mean, I'm over here, I'm not sure God likes me, but we're just gonna kinda skip the kitty end of the pool and go straight into believing for children when we're closer to being buried ourselves than anything else. Like, this is kind of ridiculous, and I'm not sure I'm ever gonna have faith like this guy. Like, is that really a possibility to believe for that kind of a miracle? And here's what I wanna encourage us in. 
When it says Abraham's faith didn't weaken, it doesn't mean that he never doubted ever. In Genesis 15, in fact, God ensures this promise to Abraham. Hey, you're going to have a son, and then after you have that son, you are going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? That's Genesis 15. In Genesis 17, things start to go off the wheels a little bit for, for Abraham. This is what happens. Look at what it says. God says to Abraham, I will bless Sarah. I mean, this is just as clear cut as a promise can get. God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless Sarah and will surely give you a son by her. Not only that, I'm going to bless her so that she'll be the mother of nations and kings, kings plural, are going to come from her. And Abraham responds by falling face down and it says that he laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? That's not the response of a man whose faith was flawless. Abraham got stuck going through that rational checklist that we all go through whenever we encounter a hopeless circumstance that surrounds us, right? Abraham is hearing what God's saying. We're reading what God's saying. But as he's hearing what God says, he's also going through this rational checklist that we all have. We have this like pen, hypothetically, that we keep behind our ear for situations like this. And Abraham's going, okay, God says we're gonna have children, right? Okay, uh, am I 100 years old? Yep. Is Sarah 90 for sure? Is her womb barren? Yes. Are we going to have a kid? I don't know. And we do the same thing with our circumstances. We go, am I unemployed? Yes. Does the electric bill care? No. <laughs> Uh, am I going to be able to pay this? Like, and that's what we do, right? Like we have these things and it doesn't have to be that. It can be anything, right? It's like the same thing when we're talking about kids. You can do the same thing with your kids. It's like, okay, have I prayed forever that my kids are not going to do the things they're doing right now? Yes. Are they doing them? Yes. What gives God? Is there, are, are you going to do something here? But I want you to see that what we read from Abraham here, when it says that his faith never weakened, I read stuff like that in the Bible sometimes and I'm like, that's a huge bummer because I feel like I have weak faith today. But that's not what the Bible's saying at all. When it says that he weakened in his faith, it doesn't mean he never had a weak moment. It means that he never allowed a weak moment of feeling hopeless to keep him stuck in that moment of feeling hopeless. Eventually, he gets back to doubting his doubts and building on top of the hope of the promise of God's word. I'll tell you guys this, I'm not a, I'm not a tree hugger, but I ain't a tree hater either, okay? And uh, I say that because the other day, I may or may not, I don't know what you do in your free time, but I was watching a PBS documentary on uh, giant sequoia trees. And um, I'll just say this, I don't know if you guys know anything about giant sequoia trees, but they are the most mind-blowing thing you've ever heard about in your life, and I'm about to tell you why. So I'm listening to this guy and he's talking about these trees and he's saying giant sequoia trees are the largest trees on earth. Like they, they, they're not the tallest, okay, but they're not like short either. They get over 300 feet tall. So, you know, they're not munchkins. They're good sized trees, but they are the largest trees on earth. And they also live for over 3000 years. And I'm just like, 
300 feet, 3,000 years. Like these trees are crazy. But then he says, that's not the craziest part of these trees. And I'm just sitting on the edge of my seat. Like what's the craziest part about these trees? I got to know. And I'm like, I got to preach at some point, you know, I need a good sermon illustration. What's up with these trees? And he said, and the next thing I'm about to read to you, I'll have you know, I went back and rewatched it and documented it. I could tell you the timestamp on it, where he said this so that I get none of you in my inbox telling me I'm an idiot. And so this is what he said in the documentary. He said, without fire, without fire, giant sequoia trees cannot grow or reproduce. And as soon as he said that, I was like, here's the deal with that. Um, I know that you are the tree expert, uh, but I'm over here uh, just being a good citizen, pay my taxes and stuff like that. And I just got to tell you, uh, I feel pretty confident that trees and fire are a rough combo. Uh, and so I'm not seeing where you're going with this, but this is what he said. Giant sequoias really are born of fire. It gives them three things they need for regeneration. First, it punches a hole in the forest that gives them more light and more water for the sequoia seedlings. The second thing it does is it heats the cones in the mature giant sequoias without harming the trees. That helps the cones open up and there's a rain of seeds on the ground. And the final thing it does is it clears away all the leaves that build up because giant sequoia seeds need to hit bare mineral soil before they can germinate and survive well. Then he said, winter storms come in after that and bury the seeds in a blanket of snow. When the spring comes, then they have ideal conditions. It's warmer, they're wet from the snow, and they've been born from the ashes. And as I'm watching this, I'm just thinking, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It really is. To the people on the outside that see a fire in the middle of a forest, if it were you and I and we're watching a fire in the middle of a forest, we would go, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And yet, it is through that very fire that new life is being created that's going to thrive. And the same thing is true of believers. Walking with God doesn't mean that we now get to live our lives stripped of all inconveniences and trials. Not at all. God isn't interest, interested in making us into fair-weather fans of the gospel who run when anything in life gets rough. He is committed to making us sold out followers of Jesus who understand that life's trials aren't meant to take us out of the fight. They're meant to take us deeper in our faith. That when the world watches us go through extreme conditions and they say, yeah, they'll never be the same after that. When they see a fire in the middle of the forest of our faith, bankruptcy, rough marital patch, something wrong with the kids, something going on, and they say they're never gonna be the same after that. Guess what? You're right, we won't be. But it's not because God is using the fires of life to burn us down. He's using them to build us up, to plant something new in our life. It isn't the absence of extreme conditions that show how great our faith is, but it is in those extreme conditions that our faith is being forged. We can keep our peace in the middle of pain and seemingly hopeless circumstances because the hope and the peace of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is greater than the hopelessness of the circumstances that are surrounding us. See, our hope doesn't work as long as things are going really well in our lives. It works even when things are not because our hope was hung on a cross buried in a tomb, but he did not stay there. Abraham, he finds himself in a moment of uncertainty. And I know that we've all found ourselves in moments of uncertainty. And he asks the very deep theological question that some of us I know have never asked in our life. He's in a moment of hopelessness and he says, why? Why, God? 
is this happening? I don't get it. But when we feel forced to cling to hope in the middle of hopeless circumstances, that's where we find out that God's character is unchanging and that his promises are true. It builds our trust and that brings God glory. It said in verse 19, Abraham faced the fact that he and Sarah's bodies were basically dead. But look at verse 20, how it starts. It says, and yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded God had the power to do what he promised. Do you see that? That Abraham's faith grew as things went long. Abraham, his faith went deeper. Why? Because he spent time with God. And the more time that he spent with God, the more faith that he had in God. As his wait on God's timing went longer, his faith in God's promises went deeper. And that trust brought God glory. When the wait didn't become, when the wait went longer, he didn't become less certain, like, oh my gosh, is God gonna come through? He had his moments, but ultimately he said, you know what? I have seen enough from God to know that his promises are true and he's gonna come through on this. And I say that to you and point that out because I think, at least in my own life, I don't know about you guys, but most of us, we struggle more with God's timing than we do his testing. See, we understand that the struggle makes us stronger. At the most simplistic level, we get that. Those of you that have kids, you understand, I can't just keep picking my kid up his entire life. Otherwise, they're not gonna develop the leg muscles that are necessary to eventually start crawling and walking towards me. And then beyond that, you understand, if I give that kid that eventually learns to walk towards me everything that they want in life, they're gonna turn into someone then that is probably a little bit spoiled if we're just being honest with ourselves. Like we get that with our kids. We even get when we read the scriptures, man, it looks like God is testing this person's faith, not to just be like, man, you failed. I can't believe you didn't, you didn't rise up in that moment. But he's showing us, man, are they gonna unravel a little bit under small inconveniences and the pressures of life? Or is their hope and their confidence becoming slowly and surely more unshakable in who I am? Are they starting to recognize that I am who I say I am? That's what Abraham had to do. He had to get to a point where he had total trust and faith in God. And that's what God wants for us to have total trust and to be full of hope in him. Uh, I saw this video that went viral this past summer. Some of you guys may have seen this. And then I read about it in USA Today. So the Boston Orchestra, they're having this concert. And towards the very end of their performance, that like the very end of the very last, I guess, song. I don't know if that's like what they call it in orchestras. But the very last song, you can hear audibly. It, you can tell it's a young boy in the background as they're winding down. He just audibly gasps at the end of the song. He goes, wow. <laughs> and everybody that's there is like, how do we respond to this? We're stuffy and uptight. We don't know what to do with this. We're the people that you don't invite to parties. What do you do with this? Is someone going to tell this little kid that he can't talk? Like, what's going on? But that's not what happens at all. Everyone kind of like pauses like, who's going to do it first? And then they start clapping and they start laughing. And then at that point, it's like, okay, who's the kid? Who is this little kid that couldn't contain himself because it just moved him so much to hear this performance that all he could say is, wow. Well, it turns out that it was a young nine-year-old boy named Ronan. 
and he was at the orchestra with his grandfather, Stephen. And as they were there, they, they went to this concert just because his grandfather had tickets. And so they ended up finding Stephen after the concert. And the local news channels, they go to him and they're like, oh my gosh, we have so many questions. We want to know about your grandson, Ronan. Can you tell us something about him? Like, we've never heard anything like that. He says, you want to know what's crazier than that? Is I've never heard anything like that. And he said, because... Ronan's on the autistic spectrum and he's nonverbal. And he said, I can count on one hand the amount of times he's ever spoken in his life, let alone responded like that. And I tell you guys that because that's, because that's how God moves in our circumstances. It doesn't matter how hopeless your situation is. If you've never spoken in your life, you can walk out on the other side of God's promises and you can be saying, wow, you could be walking in a hopeless season, but if you find the courage to put your hope in God again, then you could very well walk into a doctor's office after a bad diagnosis or walk out after a bad diagnosis. You could be walking through the middle of a rough patch in your marriage. You could be walking in just a discouraging season, you could be walking out of a funeral and you could be saying, and yet my hope is in the Lord. See, I think we need more prayerful people that have put their hope in God and have the expectation that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're gonna see a move of God in our cities, our communities, and our own lives. Abraham didn't just hope that God would deliver on his promises. He hoped with an expectation that God will not go back on his word and God delivered. And you wanna know what's crazy about God's promises is he's still answering them. After it says that Abraham had hope and trust that God had the power to deliver on what he had promised, look at what it says in those last few verses in Romans 4, 22 through 24. It says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The greatest promise that God ever made is one that's woven throughout scripture. More than 300 times there are prophecies and promises in the Old Testament that God is sending somebody, that he's sending a Messiah, a king, a hero, and his name is Jesus. There is no greater hope than the hope that we have in Jesus. I don't know where you are as you come into this place today. I don't know what you've been going through recently or in the recent years. I don't know if you came in here because you serve and it's something that you do every week or because someone just quite honestly would not shut up about it at work and so you're here because you wanted to sit next to them and hear what this Jesus stuff is all about. But I can say this, I don't know if your hope is in God, I don't know if you've never had your hope in God or if you feel like, man, I wanna start hoping in God again. But I just wanna say this to you as we close, the hopelessness of your circumstances is never greater than the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Nothing in the history of the world looked more hopeless than when the Son of God and Savior of the world hung dead on a cross. But what looked hopeless was really just God working on fulfilling his promises to his people. Jesus wasn't just given over to be murdered, he willingly gave his life so that he could purchase yours. And what's crazy is when they nailed Jesus to the cross, what they didn't recognize is they were nailing our sins to our Savior, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we 
might become the righteousness of God. That's why it was credited to Abraham and it's credited to us that our faith has made us in right standing with God. When they buried Jesus in that tomb, he did not stay dead. He left those sins that were nailed to him in that tomb and rose to new life so that we could too rise to new life in him, that we could recognize in our most hopeless moments, Jesus gets the final say on our circumstances and on our life. Our darkest sins are not the end. Our messiest moments are not the end. Death is not the end for those whose hope, faith, and confidence is in Jesus Christ. Hopelessness died at the foot of the cross and hope rose in Jesus. That's the hope that we have today. And I really don't know where you're at in your life, but I'll tell you this, I, you know, I wrote this book um, called Your Mess Matters and it was birthed out of a lot of things that I was going through that nobody knew that I was going through. And I know that there are things that you're going through that nobody else knows that you're going through. Maybe not even the people in your house, but I, I, want, I want us all to recognize this, that the whole sermon in a sentence is really that there are no hopeless circumstances surrounding you that the hope of Jesus is not greater than. That light shines in the darkness. There is nothing better that you could do moving through this holiday season than to put your faith in him for the first time, or maybe not even for the first time, but to just rededicate your faith and just say, man, I, I, I need to put my hope and my confidence in him again. I haven't been living like that recently. And if that's you, I just want to pray for you because I, I know I've been there. I know I've been there. And I know that we all have probably, if you've been walking with God long enough, you've probably been there too. And I just want to pray for you. And I want you to know that I don't know exactly what it is, but I see you. And more importantly than me seeing you or Brian seeing you or Mark or any of the team seeing you is that Jesus Christ sees you. So I'm going to pray for us all right now, if you would. God, I thank you for each individual that's here. And God, I thank you for their circumstances that they don't even know are forging them right now, that are reworking faith in them in a way that maybe they didn't want, that they didn't expect. But you're still using it. And God, the thing that I love about being someone who has hope in you is that we know all things are redeemable, even the things that we feel like there is no way. God, I pray that you would use their circumstances, good or bad, for their good, and most importantly, for your glory. Lord, I pray that they would have the confidence to come up and talk to somebody at this church that they know that they've seen come to Christmas Eve service to bring someone with them who maybe doesn't have this, this hope or this confidence that they need. God, I thank you that you sent your one and only son to die on the cross, to stand in our place, to do what we couldn't. And God, finally, I just ask right now that you would do what only you can. I can say the words, but I can't change the hearts. I can't change the minds. But you are in the business of renewing minds. You are in the business of turning stone hearts into flesh. God, do something that only you can do for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen.